This is Sean, and you are listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there, I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. My guest this week is Brianna McDonald, founder of The Care Co. The Care Co. is building a SaaS solution for young people and their educators to build mental health literacy, strategies, and resilience at an early age. Owing to the complexities of unpacking such a topic, we've split this over two parts. Stay tuned next week for the second half of the conversation. In part one, we chat about the compounding effects of mental health, Brianna's background intersecting on this exact space, how world events have made the need and possibility of a solution align, and strategies to help educators take up these difficult conversations. Please enjoy part one of my discussion with Brianna McDonald. Today on the show, we welcome Brianna McDonald, founder of The Careco. The Careco is a little startup out to change the world of mental health education, which is undoubtedly going to be a complex topic to cover. So Brianna, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. How would you best describe yourself and what you're trying to do here? My name is Brianna. I'm a Canadian First Nations woman living and working here in Australia. I am, like you said, the founder of The Careco. At the end of the day, I am a very energetic, quite an optimistic type of person. And I think that is incredibly important, not only in the role of the founder of a fast-growing startup, but also especially if you are willing to work in the mental health space as well. It can be quite a challenging space. It can be quite confronting at times, but for me, it's incredibly rewarding. So at its core, and this sounds quite technical, so I'm, I'm happy to deep dive into this later. At its core, the CareCo is bringing evidence-based psychology practices to the classroom so educators can teach tangible, actionable mental health habits to students. And we're making it a lot easier for very young people to learn evidence-based, great mental health habits from a really young age. All right, let's talk about the mental health landscape to begin with. Now, you're not the first person that we've had on the show who has discussed mental health, but I would love to hear your personal take on what mental health is. How would you define mental health? I think about this a lot, as you can expect. And, and especially because mental health can be very hard to define and it's non-tangible. In some ways, it can be hard to grasp as well. So I've given this a lot of thought over time. So I'll give you a bit of an analogy, looking at both mental health and physical health, because I find that's often one of the best ways that I can make this concept relatable, if you will. So if we look at, dialing back for a moment, physical health. Physical health is essentially the physical abilities or the level of wellness in the body. And that's everything from musculoskeletal systems right through to our endocrine system. And what that does is support basic human functions like moving, eating, breathing, reproducing, and so forth. Really tactile, tangible physical health qualities. Conversely, looking at the mental health space, it's the internal or less tangible qualities of a person's ability to regulate their social, emotional, and psychological well-being. It's essentially the quality of a person's ability to handle or how they react to adverse experiences, our ability to respond to stress, and our ability to regulate 
our internal states of being, moods, emotions, or decision-making processes. I do appreciate that's that is quite a top-level technical way of looking at mental health. I use those two very distinct definitions because I hope this example makes it really clear for people is, let's say you've been in a biking accident, you know, and you get quite banged up from that. And you might have quite a lot of bruising, you might have a sprained ankle, you might have broken a wrist, whatever the case might be. In that event, we would hope you would head off to the doctor or the hospital, and by and large, we know how to treat a broken wrist. We can really easily see and diagnose that through x-rays or other diagnostic tools. We, by and large, know exactly how to treat that. Uh, that person or you would go through the healing journey. We can then dial back to those same diagnostic tools like x-rays, and we can see that it's been treated and healed. And we move on with the rest of our lives. In the mental health landscape, like I said, it's less tangible. It's those internal qualities of a person in relation to their social, emotional, and psychological well-being is that's really, you can't see that. You can't touch that. We don't have an x-ray machine that can just assess what's going on with somebody internally in, in this space. When something is not working the way that we would expect it to, I think the question is, is how do we diagnose that? And how do we treat that? Further still, if we look at that biking accident example, in mental health, sometimes, but maybe less common, very rarely is it one major biking accident or something similar to that causes a mental health breakdown. More often is the case, it's a series of smaller accidents. Certainly those big one-offs like a lived traumatic experience do happen and can cause a breakdown in mental health capabilities and expectations, but more often is the case, it's a series of smaller accidents that lead to the breakdown. So I, I like to use that kind of example and analogy because I think when you compare the similarities and differences of physical health to mental health, that's when people are really like, oh, okay, just because I can't see a broken wrist or a, a bruised knee, it is just as real. It's just less tactile. Fantastic explanation. Thank you so much. I guess the crux of the CareCo is that it's not just mental health, but mental health for children. Now, perhaps quite timely is the case that's playing out in the media at the moment with Terence Kelly over in Western Australia, who, as listeners and yourself may be aware, abducted a little girl in the not-too-distant past and has just been sentenced. And as part of the sentencing process, it was alluded to quite often that he had suffered quite a traumatic childhood, and that has had ongoing impacts into how he conducts himself day to day. So this might be a pretty tough question, but I'd love to hear your take on it. What mental health impacts can actually be traced to early childhood? Mm -hmm. Now, this is a growing body of evidence, as I'm sure you can expect. And you're not wrong. I've been following what's been happening over in Western Australia, both from the very first time that that instance happened with that very young woman going missing. And then subsequently when, thank goodness, she was found and they were able to charge somebody. And as that justice system process has unfolded over the last month or year or so, give or take, I wouldn't speak to his particular lived experience and background. However, he is an example of um, certainly a growing body of evidence that is being researched more and more 
commonly as the years unfold. If we look over the last, say, 20 to 30 years, there has been a lot of exploration into adverse childhood experiences. Terrence Kelly, in this instance, is an example of that. He is one example of that, so I certainly wouldn't hold his experience to be true across the board. However, this is really relevant and timely. So adverse childhood experiences, that is an assessment tool. They call it an ACE score. And it was originally, I guess, the idea behind it started in about the mid-80s with professionals in the healthcare community. And then by about the early to mid-90s, they had actually developed this assessment tool that is still used today. It is a little bit controversial. It seems a little dated in some ways. However, it is still, by and large, one of the go-to assessment tools to better understand somebody's childhood experience and how that could be relating to problematic behaviors in the current day or later in life in this instance when somebody reaches adulthood. And the adverse childhood experience assessment tool is looking at about 10 types of traumatic experiences that any young person could experience or witness or be involved in at a very young age. And then it also what it does is it gives us an indicator of the possible increased risks or health risks that a person might experience or suffer from or be challenged by later in life. So for example, the death of a parent or a caregiver, somebody in your immediate family being involved in the justice system or or going to prison, likewise experiencing or witnessing domestic violence in the home. These are the type of lived childhood experiences that the ACE assessment tool looks at. So there are certainly capital T traumatic lived experiences a young person can face that are not included on this assessment tool. They seem to be coming, unfortunately, more common in current day events. For example, the ACE assessment tool does not include young person or a family being victims of natural disaster. And especially here in Australia, that is becoming a lot more common than it might have been 30, 40 years ago. Without fail, the science, the evidence shows, whether it was the ACE assessment tool or another one, that capital T traumatic experiences suffered at a very young age not only put a person at significantly increased risk, it's not a causation will always equal effect or vice versa, but significantly increased risk for challenging behaviors or mental health conditions later in life. So it increases the likelihood of everything from absolutely chronic mental health challenges later in life, but also really tangible physical health conditions like heart disease and high cholesterol levels. 40 years ago, for example, they were looking at increased levels of obesity in adulthood and what were possible common denominators among this group, but they couldn't find any particular common denominator that linked those people together and or why they were not responding to traditionally effective treatments for obesity. Ultimately, what became the ACE assessment tool is that one of the eventual common denominators they found was adverse childhood experiences. And this could be domestic violence in the home, the death of a caregiver, one of your immediate family members going to prison, one of your immediate family members having substance abuse disorder or significant mental health challenges, and so forth. Like I said, there are certainly instances of traumatic experience that any person could go through, especially earlier in life, that are not included on this diagnostic tool. So it certainly doesn't cover the entire breadth or scope of lived traumatic experiences a young person could be faced with. But it has proven that the evidence is there time and time again, that early childhood experiences that are traumatic early childhood experiences significantly increases the risk of 
chronic challenges or conditions faced later in life, whether it's physical health challenges, mental health challenges, behavioral issues, the increased risk and likelihood of being involved in an abusive relationship, substance abuse disorder, and so forth. It's devastating, especially the situation that's unfolding over in Western Australia. It's very, very heartbreaking to see. But now, because it's something that we're seeing more and more often, it's maybe less surprising than it would have been 20 to 30 years ago. Excellent. What a volume of detail. Thank you so much for that answer, because I think that is a really good lead into my next question. With that level of detail, someone might expect yourself, Brianna, to be perhaps a psychologist by background or some kind of sociologist, but that is not the case. So please talk us through your background. I understand that you actually began in marketing and have now found your way into founding the Careco and building this wealth of knowledge around mental health and earlier's intervention. So please, if you can share what that journey was like, I'd love to hear it. I think it's always good detail to point out that in my much younger life, when I was originally considering university, what I would be studying at a higher level, the decision was always going to be business or medicine. Some of my friends and family members have often described me as a medical enthusiast, because that is absolutely true. I have always been interested in psychology, medicine, healthcare, you name it. Particular, even to that, when I was in, let's say, early high school aged, and really deciding on those electives that in Canada needed to complete before you applied for tertiary education, was not only deciding between business and medicine and what route that I wanted to go. But if it was medicine, it would certainly be in the pediatric space. And then that decision would be either psychology or oncology. This is certainly not an interest that I developed overnight in the last year or two, let's say. This has certainly been a lifelong interest of mine. Ultimately, I did end up going to business school. My first time in university, I did an honors degree in business. And it's interesting, it's come very full circle now. The thesis project that I did as a requirement for that degree was cognitive behavioral marketing. Long before that was cool, long before psychodemographics were really mainstream conversation or even consideration among the marketing community. Where I'm at now, it's like, oh, of course she was interested in that. <laughs> but I did, I did a marketing degree and that was some of my first best professional experiences and certainly the industry that I knew inside and out. So in my earlier life, in my 20s, my first foray into entrepreneurship, I eventually transitioned from freelancing and then consulting through to owning a copywriting and communications marketing agency. And I had that for over five years. It was just one of my best sources of not only income, but still staying on top of industry trend and practices and growing my professional experience and skill set while I continued to study because I was in school for some time. This all comes full circle at the end. What well, was possibly a point of differentiation with my work that I did under the agency was I really categorized our client projects into two types. One were a little more creative focus, that kind of what people expect of people who work in graphic design and marketing and advertising and so forth. And that was working on campaigns for new products or e-commerce brands or what have you. The other side, though, just as important is really harking down on communications. And that I often described as business development communications. So that could be an internal communication structure. That could be certainly brand architecture. It was a little less creative and flashy, but still as integral to other businesses and organizations who didn't have the capacity to do work like that in-house. It always seemed like one side of it was really creative and fun but certainly the development time on those projects was a lot longer. The other side was a little more black and white, a little more business oriented, but it meant that I was in a great position to work with teams who needed that type of support 
in their organization. And the best way they could do that was either working with a consultant, a contractor, outsourcing that work, whatever the case may be. I mentioned that only because some time ago, I took on a two-month contract with an education services provider. It was an alternative school here in Australia. And they were really unique in that they followed the trauma-informed education model. So they were certainly a specialist school provider. And I was coming in to help them out for eight weeks or two months because the person who was traditionally in that role was still on maternity leave. And there was a couple of projects they needed to pick up and keep carrying along until they returned to the office. What was supposed to be a two-month endeavor ended up being over three years. And that was my first introduction on the ground into not only education system here in Australia, but also the trauma-informed network comprises not just in our case, school and education services providers, but everything else that comes with working with that population and that student demographic. So psychology teams, family and child service workers or social workers, as we often know them, disability support, liaison workers or Aboriginal support workers, you name it. Only about, goodness, probably two thirds of our team members were actually educators as we often know them. The other third was everybody else who comes with working with a population of students who by and large came from trauma-informed backgrounds. So I ended up working with them for over three years and I absolutely flourished and loved it. I did work on the management team, I should say. So it really brought together, yes, my business experience and all of that work I had been doing for the however many years it had been at that point, but also my personal interest and passion for not only young people, but also really bled in everything that comes with, like I said, working with this subset of the population how deeply we needed to work alongside and understand social systems here in Australia, especially family and child support systems, the healthcare support that often came along with a lot of these young people and or their families. In our instance, just given the students that we work with, we were a school where a very high majority of our students had a diagnosed or imputed disability. But for us, it was often a social emotional disability. It really was this coming together of having a lot of experience in academia myself, always loving school, being a very studious person, being able to support and work alongside this school network from a business perspective, because that's what I brought to the team. And also getting to deep dive and really intimately know the trauma-informed space while bringing together that skills and experience. So that's how I ended up making that leap from traditional business through to marketing, through to the trauma-informed space, and why it probably just ignited my very long-standing passion for not only pediatrics and working with young people, but also interest in healthcare and psychology and related services. Professionally and personally, I've always been very pro-tech. And because of the young people and families that we worked with, and because we followed a modified or alternative curriculum, it became glaringly obvious that we were not only introducing our students to really fundamental mental health and social-emotional literacy possibly a later age than one would hope. Our students were about middle school aged instead of primary. But also, even though we were introducing these fundamental mental health and social emotional principles at a later age, even that felt like a one-off. Even that felt like the outlier because this was well before COVID, I should say as well. So that type of ingrained social emotional literacy and, and mental health lessons that we had built into every classroom and lesson plan was certainly the anomaly in the education industry. This was not something that you could go out into the city and see it. And that's really what kicked it off was, okay, it's fantastic that we are supporting these high-risk young people with fundamental social-emotional literacy. 
admittedly at a point in their lives or their family's lives where they have already had to unenroll from a mainstream school setting and seek out an alternative education provider because of their lived experience or social emotional needs or other high needs. So many things came together. My first hypothesis would have been if this type of curriculum and support was built into every school, their needs might have been better met at the first or second school they had enrolled in a more mainstream setting. My second hypothesis was if this type of curriculum and support was built into every school and classroom at the primary education level, perhaps at a younger age, these students and their families would have had the support or at least language and awareness they needed to better navigate some of their experiences or needs in life. They may have not ended up enrolling in a school like ours as well as more of a preventative social emotional learning. And then second to that, I was aware of this the curriculum and the type of classroom and school model that we followed wasn't scalable. So it, was, it was certainly um, not necessarily one-to-one ratio, but it was certainly a very pen and paper, hands-on, very manual approach. And like I said, it was very pro-tech. So then it was considering how would we do this and make it scalable to every school and every young person at an earlier age, technology can do that. I absolutely appreciate in more recent history, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding big tech However, I hope, believe for the rest of my life that the opportunities for technology to do good and create equality and accessibility and scale in traditionally underserved spaces or resources or with certainly underserved demographics, that's what we can really lean on tech for good for. That was that all coming together of how I made it from business to marketing to the trauma-informed space, looking at our very unique social-emotional curriculum and being like, wouldn't this make a lot more sense if it was everywhere at every school for every young person. Also at an earlier age, more preventative instead of a reactive approach of there's already significant challenges seen or being experienced. Shouldn't we have gone in a little bit younger? And then again, how would we make that a really scalable solution? And and hopefully technology could do that. So that's how it all began, Sean. Excellent. It's fantastic overview of the journey that you've gone through from start all the way to now. A thread that I want to pull on as you've talked us through all of that was your hypotheses. So the hypothesis that this is something that children will benefit from if there was earlier intervention, it is one thing to recognize that, yes, it's a need, but how would you validate that it would be a want? So I guess from that perspective, if you were to create a tech product and sell it to perhaps schools or educators. What's the validation process like there to go, all right, yes, this is something that people actually want. There's really great space here to talk about for the first time, the difference between social, emotional or mental health literacy and strategies or actual tools and skills. At a very top level, social, emotional literacy is like anything else. It's the introduction to the concept. It's a really fundamental understanding about what social emotional means, what mental health means. And that is incredibly important. I would say in much more recent history, especially post COVID, social emotional literacy, very fundamental introductory conversations are really coming to the forefront in mainstream. I'm fully aware that just because I worked in this space before COVID, it was definitely still a very niche space, a niche conversation about how widespread is very young person mental health. 
is that even possible? Because yes, I can be as excited and well-versed in this space as I want to, but at a much more mainstream level, that would have been a much harder sell. Now that COVID has happened and unfolded the way it was, and it's brought the conversations of very young person mental health and well-being to the mainstream, those conversations are much more readily accepted and they're ongoing. That is great because it means that the support for mental health literacy, introducing educators, service workers, professionals, parents, and guardians to the idea of mental health and well-being for very young people, how to conceptualize or have those conversations with very young people for the very first time, that is incredibly important because it means we're having those conversations. I would guess when you and I were very young, those were certainly not conversations being had at a really mainstream widespread level. So that is important. And I don't want to minimize the importance of the literacy aspect of it because informed conversation and understanding is where we certainly want to be. However, mental health literacy and introduction to the fundamentals of what it means does not necessarily translate to tangible, actionable strategies and skills. And that is where I see a really big gap right now. So looking at the need, I think this conversation would have been very different pre-COVID. Like I said, I think the understanding and awareness of not only young person mental health, but an alarmingly fast-growing rate of poor mental health among very young people, youth, and adolescents is certainly a much more mainstream topic now. I can't really think of an instance where I would come across somebody where if I mentioned mental health rates among young people are on the decline, and they're declining pretty fast. I haven't met someone in recent history who was surprised by that statement. <laughs> I certainly think that is just an accepted knowledge at this point. Devastating, a very heartbreaking acceptance, but I think by and large, a lot of people know that at this point. That's hurdle number one, is we certainly aren't having to convince anybody that this is something that we know to be true. But that doesn't translate to what do we actually do about it? We know that there is an increasing number of natural disasters that are happening worldwide. Not only the impacts of those natural disasters, but how often they're happening. That's good. That's good that we know that. But what do you do about that? And this is much the exact same. It's great that we know that young person mental health is a real thing and then it's on the decline, but what do we do about that? Post-COVID, the fact that literacy piece is starting to slide into place, that's fantastic. That is incredibly important. The need is there and the need is finally at the mainstream. So that bridge has been crossed for us. But the want, when you look at primary education curriculums around our first countries of interest, so Obviously, we are here in Australia. New Zealand certainly was on the list for us. I'm from Canada originally, the UK, America. The countries that we selected were not only is there a growing body of evidence and support for young person mental health, but curriculums are slowly changing. I say that carefully because one of my longstanding gripes will always be that core curriculums and syllabuses around these countries of interest will always include literacy, rightly so reading, writing, mathematics, language development, incredibly important concepts and skills. That might have stood in when you and I were in primary school many years ago, but the evidence now of core fundamental life skills like emotional health and well-being or even financial literacy missing from those core syllabuses, the outcomes of that missing from the core curriculum Cracks are starting to show. In terms of the want, there are some curriculums that are slowly changing or in the instance here in Australia, it's called PDHPE. That's personal development, health, physical education. Most people just call it health 
It is the health subject in school. Certainly really leans on physical health and activity, rightly so. Physical health, nutrition, movement are incredibly important contributors to a healthy, sustainable lifestyle. But what's interesting about a lot of these curriculums is they mention at a very small level, maybe once, about the importance of educators introducing their students to how to develop a sense of resilience or how to become aware of and maintain a level of well-being, how they should develop an awareness, a personal awareness and awareness of others to create safe, sustainable communities, both for themselves and their peers. That's great. At a really theoretical level, that's a fantastic concept that we want educators and schools to be introducing young people to concepts of resilience and well-being and healthy interpersonal relationships and safe school environments. However, that has never translated to how the educators are meant to do that. We, by and large, know how to teach young people basic nutrition principles, physical activity and exercise. That's great. We've been able to translate those ideologies into very tactile lessons that can be taught in the classroom or in a school environment. There is no really widely available means to be requiring a teacher to teach social awareness resilience, wellness, well-being, and safety. But how they're actually meant to do that, especially for very young people, is not there. So this is, again, dialing back to what I said about literacy versus strategies. It's fantastic that we are starting to talk about this and we are introducing people to the concepts, the ideas, and the language. It is wonderful that some curriculums, especially in the health subject space, are like, we need to Make sure that young people are developing a level of self-awareness, of they know what a healthy interpersonal relationship looks like, of building resilience. Those are great, but that is literacy. That is not arming teachers or young people with actual lesson plans and activities that can teach those same outcomes. What we've done so far in this conversation is we've covered the what of mental health and we've covered the why of its importance. And you've just started touching on the how of the CARECO. Now let's dive into that a little bit more. So you've mentioned lesson plans. You've mentioned getting this in front of students and empowering teachers and strategies and so on. How would a teacher or a student make use of the CARECO's EdTech platform? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? It's a coming together of so many different wants and needs. Over the course of developing what would ultimately become our solution. This started, bearing in mind, over four years ago now. This was January 2019 when I really looked at introducing not only evidence-based social, emotional, and psychology practices into the classroom, but at scale. That was great that that was the outcome that I wanted, but how to actually do that, that took a long time to come to. This was certainly not an overnight process. What we needed for the CareCo was a two-sided product. And I say that because having worked in the school environment before, and one of my biggest portfolios at the time definitely skewed away from maybe the original project I was brought on to manage was a digital uplift project. So I had seen software and overhauled and integrated in schools before and certainly saw what worked and didn't work and absolutely knew firsthand that if the product wasn't as designed for educators as it was the students and young people, we were dead in the water. Teaching is probably one of the world's most challenging jobs and any solution, whether it's software or not, needs to make that job easier. 
it's great that you can give them a tangible means to teach certain lessons or topics in the classroom, but it does have to be a seamless integration. So designing the product, I always kept that hat on, is we are designing as much for the educators as we were for the students and young people. And likewise, there was a couple of other frameworks or theses that I needed to decide for the CareCo that were going to then inform how and what we built, what the actual solution was going to be and look like. But one of the biggest and foremost ones was that we were designing a how or a solution for the highest risk young people first. Notwithstanding, this is only our definition, and it certainly does not cover the full scope of young people, but that included young people with disabilities. We certainly know that they are at higher risk for mental health challenges. Young people from trauma-informed backgrounds, including, yes, like I had mentioned earlier, ACE or Adverse Childhood Experiences definition of traumatic experiences, but also broadening that more deeply. Like I said, the ACE assessment tool excludes victims of natural disaster, victims of war, so on and so forth. So we broadened what we take to be a lived traumatic experience. And also just other young people who are at high risk for mental health challenges who by and large at present don't have an existing disability or don't have a major lived traumatic experience, but might be at high risk. It could be a genetic predisposition for mental health challenges. We design for those young people first. And that is certainly a step away from a much more mainstream classroom setting in that traditionally lesson plans and curriculums are designed for the masses first. You know, teaching is at scale delivery. You design lesson plans that are meant to suit the needs of most young people in the classroom and young people with additional needs or alternative learning needs are offered a modified curriculum. And we wanted to reverse that model because if a young person has a disability, whatever that means, or a young person has lived traumatic experience, there's certainly a growing body of evidence to show that a young person who is trauma-informed actually does learn differently from their peers. So we wanted to design for those needs first, knowing that their peers would be able to access and benefit from the same curriculum. I'm summarizing now over four years worth of work and development, but we needed a way for teachers to, like I said, translate mental health literacy into actual lesson plans or activities that could be introduced taught and habitualized in the classroom day in or week in and week out. So what's really great now is post-COVID, digital resources for most schools and in most classrooms are a lot more readily available than they were pre-COVID. Certainly that's not true of all schools. There's going to be some schools where there is a one-to-one tablet or laptop model per students. That's certainly not the majority of schools, but it absolutely exists both here in Australia and overseas. But post-COVID, the number of digital devices available to schools, classrooms, and students are higher than they were four or five years ago because of the necessity of remote learning. So that's really great for us. That was just happen chance. That really worked in the CareCo's favor. I'm sure there's young students who would disagree with this, but by and large, most young people The time and subject matters and lessons they get to learn on those digital devices is really exciting, is really engaging. It's certainly not how most lesson plans are taught every day, all day. That is certainly a special part of their day. They might spend upwards of 20 to 30 minutes on a tablet or on some sort of digital device. And that, to them, is quite exciting and different to the rest of the school environment they engage with that day. That's great. That works in our favor as well. I always describe the CareCo in a really kind of cliche sort of way, but in the business of building habits and like any school subject or lesson plan is new knowledge and skills. It's developed over time. Certainly not you introduce someone to something once and it's now an ingrained habit. That level of routine, consistency and structure that's in a school and classroom environment is really, really good for us. 
because you're reintroducing young people to not only the topic, but the activities time and time again for them to be able to learn these mental health habits or coping skills that we're hoping they will learn. For a young person, not only are we making our activities or lesson plans a little more exciting and different than the rest of their classroom curriculum because we are delivered by digital device. But we really did design a platform that's within the means and abilities of a child. It gives them that tick of something I can choose and action on my own. It's a coming together of so many different wants and needs. And it's really how the research and development process did take such a long time because we were looking at the wants and needs of so many different stakeholders. Excellent. Okay. I have a few questions surrounding that. I think to start off with is how do you empower teachers to have these conversations? Because at least for yourself or myself, at our age level, if we need to have mental health conversations, we see a professional, a psychologist or a counselor, we hope we hope that's the, the person that we turn to if we want to learn a little bit more about ourselves. How do you empower teachers to be this person that can provide this advice, which can be very complex, and be this person that they're not necessarily qualified to be? I think because an educator or a classroom teacher is a very pivotal and influential adult figure in a young person's life. They have a lot of influence on a young person especially when they spend so much time with them throughout the week during a traditional school semester. So what we want the care code to do is take that onus away from the teacher being a subject matter expert. We certainly do not expect them to be an expert in pediatric psychology, or if they're at more mainstream public school setting, being an expert in trauma-informed young people and their different learning needs and so forth. A part of a lot of schools now, just as commonplace as child safety training is for both school registration and also professional qualification registration, we are starting to introduce learning modules that introduce social-emotional literacy and young person well-being at a staff level. And that's great. Like I said, introducing those conversations and topics for the first time is very important. But those learning modules are, one, like mentioned, often a part of registration requirements. They tend to be fairly infrequent. So a child safety training might be something that an educational team completes as a refresher course once to twice a year. Being introduced and completing those learning modules is a lot different than being faced with that. So what we're hoping to do with the CareCo is because we are an evidence-based tool, we've done those hard yards of finding out what are the most often turned to effective and impactful psychology branches or principles that work for young people between the ages of five and 12. That alone takes the onus away from a teacher having to figure that out themselves, being like, that's great. I have a group of year one students and I'm meant to be introducing social emotional education to them for the first time. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what the different psychological branches are. We certainly do not expect that of a teacher at a primary education level in any subject matter. They're more of a generalist approach. So the CARECO takes over that required expertise for them. What it does instead is also remind educators on a daily and weekly basis about social emotional education. It's no longer just reminding them once or twice a year, oh yeah, I have to complete that refresher course on young person's social emotional well-being because it's now an in-classroom software 
that they're using ideally daily, but at least a couple of times a week, oh yeah, this is one of our core subject matters now. The same way that reading would be, the same way that mathematics would be. It's a constant ongoing reminder about we are teaching this now. It is a part of our core curriculum and weekly lesson plan instead of both teacher and child being like, oh yeah, that is a thing once or twice a year. What I'm really proud of with the CareCo is that not only have we put in those hard yards and taken the onus away from the teacher needing to be a subject matter expert, but it means that we can take those same evidence-based psychological practices and we've created a way to deliver those at scale. Because traditionally, the much more accepted model of psychology or well-being support is a much more one-to-one model of a psychologist and a therapist. Or in the event where you have a young person with additional needs or a disability, they might have an education support worker. Again, that is a very one-to-one model and not scalable. We've taken away the teacher's need to be a subject matter expert, and we've shown these are the psychological practices that are the most effective for this group of young people, and then created a way to deliver those to all young people. I should say as well that we're very clear about and always very upfront that especially in the mental health space, there is never going to be a one-size-fits-all approach. Dialing back to that example that I gave about physical health at the very beginning of our conversation, if you have a broken wrist, by and large, we know how to treat that. And excluding a really extraordinary circumstance, the treatment course is pretty much the same. Mental health does not translate the same way in that how any person, whether they're an adult or a child, is treated is very subjective. And it is often up to the practitioner to understand that person's lived experience and what they're struggling with to decide the best course of action and treatment plan for them. So in the event where any young person has an existing mental health challenge, has an existing disability, or has a lived traumatic experience, the CARICO is going to be one of a few supports that supports their mental health and well-being, but it's not going to be the only one. I'm very careful about saying that the CARICO is not a replacement for the importance and effectiveness of a one-to-one psychologist-to-patient model, but it's a way that we can take these evidence-based practices and deliver them at scale, both for, hopefully, a preventative approach and also just delivering a fundamental life skill to all young people in those really key early developmental years, not only when signs of declining or poor mental health are already starting to show. Awesome. Thank you so much for the clarification of how and where the CARECO will be used. I knew this was going to be really complex and we still have a lot to cover. We haven't even gotten onto distribution yet. So I think what I'm going to do for the first time is we'll take a pause here and we'll continue with a part two. Brianna, thank you so much. We will come back to this conversation where we can then dive right into distribution. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sean. It was nice talking to you. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is Promise.